Hi everyone, welcome to season two of Project Quarantines. This is an episode of a three-part series where I interviewed Dr. Samantha Yauzi, a professor of biological anthropology at Utah State University. In our episodes, we first travel to the past to understand what biological anthropology is and its importance. Then we learn about the present challenges in combating misinformation and what we can do to prevent it. And finally, we discuss the future of pandemics, public health measures, and vaccines. Please like and share, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Why do you think it's so hard to achieve these mitigation measures? I mean, when we look at it, we had these issues from, like you said, the 17th century, and now it's still happening today during our, our pandemic that we're in. So what are we fundamentally doing wrong with how we implement these strategies? One of the things that is very difficult about quarantine measures is it interrupts your social life. It interrupts your how your community functions. Um, it can have serious impacts on mental health. Um, and after a while, your culture and the fabric of your society, including economic and political processes that need to occur, they, they get disrupted. And so people have a very hard time adjusting to that. And one of the things that's going to help you implement quarantine measures is preparing a population for that disruption and preparing people for the fact that you might not be able to do a lot of things that you're used to doing. Um, and there's going to be a little blowback um, in a social sense with quarantine measures. And so recognizing that thing is one of the things that's going to help us better implement quarantines in the future is is just preparing people for the difficulties associated with them. Now, would you say because of our advancements in technology and globalization, it's a lot easier to follow these practices in the near future? Or do you think it's going to get worse? That's tough. Um, certainly with global travel, we have, um, we have a harder time limiting how quickly a, an infected person can get from um, one place to the next. In the past, that wasn't as much of an issue. Nowadays, we have planes, trains, and automobiles that can get you from the United States to China in a few hours. That wasn't true in the 14th century. You know, it's going to take you months to get from Europe to the United States. So the ease of travel certainly makes it a little more difficult to catch people. We have to be more vigilant in our surveillance systems and surveillance sounds really scary um but it's actually just a measure that the world health organization and the centers for disease control and prevention have to trace where the disease is who has it who they've had contact with and so as we improve surveillance measures and as we get better at preventing additional 
exposures and infections, um, we have an opportunity to improve some of those quarantining and, and social distancing measures. But certainly with, with global travel, it does add that, that difficult element, especially if people are not particularly willing to subject themselves to self-isolation. When you talked about surveillance, does that encompass misinformation, including like the misinformation around vaccines and science that's constantly circulating in our world right now? So surveillance wouldn't exactly encompass misinformation, but it is certainly going to be affected by it. Um, surveillance relies fairly heavily on people being socially and politically and economically invested in stopping pandemic. So misinformation is going to be a serious problem because it's going to impact whether people believe there's an epidemic or pandemic occurring in the first place. It's going to affect um, how receptive they might be to social distancing measures or to vaccines. And that's going to limit the effectiveness of things like surveillance from the CDC um, because they won't be able to help contain people's movements and people's actions as much if people are not invested in preventing further exposures and transmission of the disease. So how should the general public receive the right information that is not clouded by misinformation in not just in pandemics, but in everything concerning science? The biggest suggestion I have for the general public is to consider your source and be very critical of where or who your information is coming from. Um, for example, I have social media accounts. You know, I have Reddit and Facebook and Instagram, but I'm not going to take my friend's grandma's word on COVID-19 or on any other scientific um, subject. You know, the, the woman is very sweet, but she doesn't have a degree in virology or epidemiology. You know, she's never studied disease transmission in her entire life. So she's not going to be the best source on how to protect yourself or protect your family or your friends during a pandemic. Um, and I know for a lot of people, it's difficult to accept the word of entities like the CDC. Um, you have to be confident that the people working at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have the most up-to-date information on what's happening and how to deal with it. You know, they have people who have devoted their lives to studying coronaviruses like the one that's involved in this pandemic. So they've really gathered up the best of the best, the experts of the experts, to advise local, regional, and national level response. So the CDC is very well prepared for this kind of thing, if we let them be. And they have this really easy to navigate website that breaks down 
different aspects of the pandemic into digestible chunks for the general public. So even if you don't know the, the CDC or another reputable source of information, even if you don't know those people personally, you can be fairly confident that they're not going to mislead you or lie to you. Their only concern is understanding the pathogen itself, understanding how that disease operates, and then trying to prevent its spread. And that should make you fairly confident in what they say. So if you hear contradictory information about um, coronaviruses or about some other disease, then I would suggest you start to look a little closer at the source of that information and start to be critical of that source. You know, does the person who's making these contradictory claims have an advanced degree in that subject? You know, do they study epidemiology? Do they study virology? Um, or on the other hand, do they have a social or political reason for trying to mislead you? So being suspicious, I guess, of the sources of information that you're seeing and letting other people know that you're suspicious of that particular source of information um, is a good start when trying to be cognizant of the potential for misinformation out there. Right. And I just wanted to add that our sources for the first season of our podcast mainly came from the CDC and the WHO. And I think you made a really good point there on how people, not just experts, but also just the general public can find a lot of their right sources just by going to these trusted websites. So absolutely. now when you also talked about how you're not going to get a lot of your information from your friend's grandma, but kids and as a lot more of the younger generation is trying to combat misinformation and raise awareness to a lot of not just scientific issues, but social issues. How can we help our communities in that right way, even though we don't have a lot of the, per se, the academic credentials? First, I think it's kind of interesting when you say you don't have the academic credentials, because in my opinion, um, teens and young adults are probably the front lines for combating misinformation and um, ensuring that people are actually getting accurate information through things like social media. Because teens and young adults are still taking science classes as part of your education. So if we compare younger generations to older members of the population, those younger individuals are more likely to have had a science class recently and therefore be scientifically literate. So as a result of that, if an expert explains to a teen or to a young adult how, say, vaccines work, then you are going to be more likely to understand and more likely to un to retain some of that factual information that they've shared with you. So when some of these conversations get started about scientific subjects, including vaccines and including COVID-19 
or even something as common as the flu, it's highly unlikely that in all of those separate little conversations that there's going to be an expert on hand to explain how those things work. So instead it's going to fall to whoever is the most scientifically literate person in that conversation. And in a lot of cases, I would wager that it's going to be teens and young adults. You guys have a very good grasp on what, what that subject is and how it works. And one of the nice things is you can help convey that information to other members of the general public who might not have had a science class in several decades, right? So teens and young adults are some of the the first people that are going to be participating in these conversations. And in addition to being scientifically literate, you guys can also speak in a way that a lot of scientists, unfortunately, cannot. Scientists have a very specific, specialized set of skills, and often public speaking is not one of them. So we need someone to essentially translate a lot of that information for us. And again, teens and young adults are the ones that are in a really good spot to retain that information and then translate it for other members of the general public. I I really like the point about how there's a lot of issues about public speaking in the scientific field and the scientific community. But how do you think, or what do you think would be the best next step for bridging that disconnect between the scientific community and the general public in terms of how we relay information to them and how they receive it? One of, the, one of the things that needs to occur is on the side of scientists. We need to try and participate more in some of these conversations, try and make our research more accessible to other members of the general public. Another thing that we can do is rely on um, science writers uh, for other media outlets. There's a science writer for Forbes, you know, there's science writers for National Geographic. Having, having some of those people who it's their job to help translate that research for the general public, that's very helpful to get the findings from science out into the world and um, in digestible and understandable forms. Um, but then I also, honestly, and maybe this is because I'm, I'm fairly young for a scientist, I think social media has a great role to play here. Um, social media gets a bad reputation for spreading misinformation, but there's also an opportunity for scientists to put our own research out there and to make it available to the general public and to the people that are having conversations about these subjects. Um, and one of the things that social media, at least in its, its current form, requires is that you, you break it down into small pieces. And so that would really um, push scientists, I think, to 
to really boil down our research and make it understandable and then give it out to people who are interested in it and allow people to have very public conversations about it on social media. Thank you, Dr. Yosi, for an amazing interview and a special thanks to all of the listeners. Please stay tuned for upcoming episodes and I hope you all have a great day.